If You Believed Moses, Volume 2, Part 1, Heresy Purifies Doctrine. Opening quote from 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they all are not of us. Close quote. The radiance of light is accentuated by the depth of darkness which surrounds it. The splendour of truth is made more brilliant as error fails to overcome it. Church doctrine shines with ever more clarity as waves of pernicious heresy fail to extinguish it. We must not be unnerved by darkness. When Jesus taught the Jews of his eternity, being the Son of God his Father, many believed in him. Despite this initial belief, a little later, Jesus says to these, Now you seek to kill me, a man who has spoken the truth to you. He gave the reason, You are of your father the devil. In short, they turned against Christ when he revealed their slavery to sin. He had stated, quote, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are the seed of Abraham, and we have never been slaves to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be free? Close quote. From this passage, St. Thomas Aquinas identifies three errors of those Jews who had been listening to Jesus. First, they boasted of their Abrahamic ancestry as if a noble birth suffices for godliness. Second, they lied, saying they had never been slaves to any man, forgetting how God saved the Hebrews from Pharaoh or how they paid tribute now to Caesar. Third, they failed to see freedom as spiritual and did not perceive they needed liberation from sin. Due to their pride, dishonesty and carnality, they spurned the Saviour. To think oneself chosen by God to the exclusion of others causes the most vaunting pride. To use God's revelation for one's own agenda, not his, nurtures the most shameless dishonesty. To reduce God's promises to temporal things, forgetting heaven, results in the most barren carnality. From these three evils, all rooted in a failure to understand the Old Testament, germinated Judaism. Inverting the highest truths makes Judaism inordinately dangerous. Corruptio optimi pessima. Those who preferred darkness to light feared the truths Jesus taught. God allowed them to kill his son, resulting through the resurrection in the propagation of the gospel to the whole world. Just as the light of the world was not extinguished but increased in radiance, so too the bride of Christ must rise ever anew to illumine the darkness. The worst crisis in church history has been metastasizing today under Francis. Such evil is not easily understood, as by nature darkness cannot be seen. But it becomes apparent when we take in a wider sweep of history. The present is largely explained by what happened before it. 
to understand what is now causing the disintegration of the institutional church, look to Vatican II. A fruitful perspective on this is given by an appraisal of the Reformation, which in its turn is clarified by an understanding of the Arian and Gnostic crises. On the surface, these disasters differ. In reality, much is the same, stretching back to Calvary. In short, the New Testament provides us a true measure of all history. The Church is built up by those who love the crucified and torn down by the crucifiers. That has not changed. The Beginning of Judaizing in the Church Jesus told the believing Jews, If you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed. But the allure of sin leads souls astray. We must not prefer anything to Christ, lest it separate us from his body. Rejection of Christ opposes life and truth. Heresy and obstinate doctrinal error is not a matter of innocent confusion, but are weapons wielded by the father of lies to murder souls. Because we would avoid obvious traps and snares, the devil's lies are presented to us dressed up as truth, and at times even coming from members of the church hierarchy. The New Testament shows that the early church understood Judaizing to be a mortal threat, an attempt to superimpose Jewish categories onto the church. Left unchallenged, attempts to align Christianity with Judaism rather than with the Old Testament would destroy the church. Christianity is fully divine and fully human, coming from Jesus Christ, true God and true man. Therefore, Christianity is apt for all men. Contrary to this, Judaism is for an elite among nations, people who count themselves a superior race. Without the revelation of the God-man Messiah, a false ceiling is imposed on reality, closing us off to the height of God's design for all men. Judaism's denial of the Incarnation inevitably cramps cognate concepts embodied by Jesus. Of divine revelation utterly transcending mortal expectations. Of the eternal informing the temporal. Of the immunity of royal service from prideful dominion. Of freedom in charity as a liberation from the yoke of the law. Judaism refuses to recognize the Messiah unless his success be visible now unless he bring perceptible peace to the world today, unless he rewards his followers with exterior goods, unless he is seen to dominate all. A crucified Messiah is unthinkable. The heavenly Jerusalem counts for nothing without the earthly Jerusalem. In a word, without Jesus Christ, circumcision of the heart is forsaken for circumcision of the flesh. The circumcision party seemed strong enough to subvert the first papacy, except that St. Paul withstood them, going on to resist also St. Peter loyally to the face. St. Paul warns there are many vain talkers, seducers of the circumcision, who subvert whole houses, teaching wrongly for filthy lucre's sake. 
These prefer mammon to God. The Jesuits are an example of a whole house subverted. St. Paul uses language so direct it is unthinkable in the church today. Beware of the dogs. But if, being lukewarm, we shy from his clarity, we are vulnerable to becoming prey. Rabbinic Judaism is a man-made religion, formulated in expectation of another Messiah by those who rejected Jesus as Messiah, though it began establishing its power base before his advent. Influenced by diabolical narcissism, it prefers the work of human hands to God's tabernacle, which is not of this creation. Even if it had not lost temple, altar and priests, the Old Covenant is no longer of use because it puts false hope in atonement through animal blood instead of the most precious blood poured out by the Lamb. With antecedents in those who murdered the prophets, Judaism began as the rejection of Christianity and therefore is logically subsequent to it. Any reader with faith can verify this by consulting Acts 11, 13, 15, 18, 19, 26, Galatians 2, Colossians 2, Apocalypse 2 and 3. If we disregard these scriptures, we could be misled into believing that Judaism is a continuation of the Old Covenant. It is not. Christianity is. Meanwhile, these same biblical passages prove that each assault on truth yields the opposite of its intended effect on those who persevere in faith. So the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily. Acts 19 Gnosticism, Arianism and Early Church Councils The enemies of Christ never cease seeking to have the Church adopt their errors. Those who follow them fall. Many have heard that Gnosticism and Arianism were virulent heresies, but one has to do a bit of digging to discover the impetus given to them by Jews. This aspect is key to understanding the targets and potency of their errors. Before the church had any political presence, rabbis drove Christians away from synagogues because unconverted Jews could not withstand the Christians' apologetic arguments. The divisions which arose between Judaism and Christianity are not due to antisemitism from the church, but hardness of heart in the synagogue in clinging to anyone but Christ. To deny Jesus is the Christ, some rabbis claimed during this early period that the promised Messiah was King Hezekiah, or even Abraham, or other impossible figures, though only Jesus fits the prophecies. Trying to enter the spiritual world without following Jesus, some have turned to demons for help. The ambitious Simon Magus likely a Samaritan, is called by St. Irenaeus the father of all heresies. His spiritual ancestors in dark magic include the sorcerers of Pharaoh's court who were confounded by Moses, as Simon, in his turn, was roundly rebuked by St. Peter. For Jews hungry for gain but averse to Jesus, these pagan and Samaritan exponents of magic were models to emulate. 
An early example of this corrupt spirit, a Jewish false prophet, Elimas the magician, Acts 13, was struck blind by the Apostle Paul, who filled with the Holy Spirit denounced him, saying with every word measured, quote, O full of all guile and of all deceit, child of the devil, enemy of all justice, thou ceasest not to pervert the right ways of the Lord. Close quote. Elimas portrays a prototype Gnostic, one who willfully deals in knowledge falsely so called. Not long after Elimas and Simon Magus, Gnosticism proliferated. In his day, Valentinus of Alexandria was the best known Christian Gnostic. This term is oxymoronic. Valentinus's teaching is not Christian. His so called Gospel of Truth is at war with truth, filled with confusion over the Father and Son, having disdain for creation and matter, involving satanic fancies about demons. Valentinus's Gnosticism is easily discoverable, but few know he was presumably of Jewish descent. Valentinus is obscure in comparison to Arius, the most famous heresiarch of the first millennium. With demonic guile, the priest Arius adamantly denied Jesus' divinity, supporting his arguments with misunderstood citations from the Old Testament. His unbending determination to degrade Jesus never made sense to me until I read Arius, like Valentinus, was of Jewish heritage. A historian in search of truth, St. John Henry Newman, found Judaism to be a direct and indirect cause of multiple heresies which battered the early church. This explains the vigorous preaching of St. John Chrysostom and also St. Bernard of Clairvaux and much else in church history falsely labelled anti-Semitism. St. John Chrysostom is supposedly anti-Semitic for robustly defending his flock against Judaizing, that is, from embracing errors which would lead his spiritual children to hell. In truth, he was inflamed with love for souls. Therefore, he was right to forbid Christians from participating in Jewish feasts, for by attending them they would imply Jesus was not the Messiah. As Judaizers provoked the imperishable homilies of the golden-mouthed St. John, so Gnosticism and Arianism occasioned early church councils which produced the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. This is the most masterly symbol of our faith, securing souls ever since in truth, while stripping the heretics of credibility among Christians. The attacks on the faith resulted in glorious, enduring and precise expressions of the faith. The enemies of Christ would have to find other ways to assault truth. They did yet with similar results. The Reformation and Trent The Renaissance is not what we are told. Born from it, the anti-doctrinal program of the Reformation shares its dark roots in Jewish magic, Kabbalah. The Jewish writer, Joshua Jehuda, pertinently recounts how scholars in the 15th century would meet at the princely house of the nobleman and philosopher Pico de Mirandola. Quote, 
the discovery of the Jewish Kabbalah, which Pico then imparted to various enlightened Christians, contributed far more than the return to Greek sources to the extraordinary spiritual blossoming which is known as the Renaissance. About half a century later, the rehabilitation of the Talmud was to lead to the Reformation. Pico de Mirandola had understood that the indispensable purification of Christian dogma could only be effected after a profound study of the authentic Jewish Kabbalah. Close quote. Worldly Christians took their lead not from Christ, but from his enemies. Clerics infatuated with fashion and nobility were seduced. Kabbalah, aimed at tapping divinity for a universal transformation of mankind, promises power through occult arts of divination, not holiness, or of dominating the divine, not surrendering to it. Similarly, the esoteric art of Gematria imposes numerical codes on the Hebrew text of the Torah to draw out secrets, effectively ceding a power of free interpretation to the reader. In contrast, traditional Christian hermeneutics allow biblical numerology only insofar as it is subordinate to doctrine established by rational study and inspiration. Rabbinic Gematria, assigning false powers to the letter, fathered the Protestant era of Sola Scriptura. In like vein today, increasing computer power is inflaming fascination with the absurd Bible code among certain Protestants. This is not how to study the scriptures. Martin Luther is famous for the bile he poured forth against Jews, but he did not start this way. At the beginning of his rebellion, studying the Talmud and gaining Kabbalistic teachings from Johann Reuchlin, he was enamoured of the Hebrews and hoped to find allies amongst them against Rome. His rebellion could never have succeeded on the merits of his theological raft. Lutheranism makes no sense. But he carved out a massive space thanks to the sponsorship of ambitious German princes political actors willing to collaborate in order to repeal the old order and assert themselves as regional rulers. Who financed their forces? Jews had long been involved in running the finances of the mighty Teutonic Order and Knights Templar. Would these Jews now support the anti-Catholic Reformation? Quote, it is beyond question, as a Jewish historian says, that the first leaders of the Protestant sects were called semi-Judai, or half-Jews, in all parts of Europe, and the men of Jewish descent were as conspicuous among them as they had been among the Gnostics and would later be among the Communists. Close quote. The respected Jewish historian Cecil Roth recounts that certain Murano Jews reluctant or insincere converts to Christianity, kept their Judaic religious identity hidden over generations, for they were weary of the disadvantages it incurred in Christendom. Quote, Maronism's essential characteristic is that it was a clandestine faith passed down from father to son. 
One of the reasons put forward to justify the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290 was that they seduced newly made converts and made them return to the vomit of Judaism. Jewish chroniclers add that many children were seized and sent to the north of the land, where they continued for a long time to practice their former religion. It is owing to this fact, reports one of them, that the English accepted the Reformation so easily. It also explains their preference for biblical names and certain dietetic peculiarities which are preserved in Scotland. This version is not so improbable as would seem at first sight and constitutes an interesting example of how crypto-jewelry can appear in places which seem obviously so little suited to it. Close quote. It is no anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but the diligent work of contemporary Jewish scholars, which traces an unbroken hereditary of Jewish influence in Scotland from pre-Reformation crypto-Jewry to today, whose, quote, craft was a mixture of technology and magic, as developed in the esoteric teachings of the architects and builders of the temple in Jerusalem, and preserved by the kings of Scotland through to the international emergence of higher degrees of Kabbalistic mysticism in the Ecossais Masonic lodges that wielded such a mysterious and powerful influence on the culture of the enlightened 18th and progressive 19th centuries. Suchard quotes documents which span seven centuries to illustrate increasing Kabbalistic influence on European society. Jewish academics take pride that the Reformation in Scotland could not have happened without the Jews, claiming Presbyterianism itself has Jewish roots. A strong case for this is made by Hirschman and Yeats. Referring to Jews expelled from Spain in 1492, they conclude, quote, the displaced Jews, like so many tiny floating seeds, landed on fertile ground in Holland, France, Scotland, Germany, Switzerland and England, where they grew into the Protestant Reformation. Close quote. Many Sephardic Jews expelled from Spain ended up in Holland or England, harboring a deep hatred of Catholicism. If one hears of the horrors that these Jews expelled from Spain experienced at the hands of Barbary pirates, then on a human level one might understand the intergenerational pan-Catholic hatred. This factor helps explain the otherwise inexplicable, how England was tipped into the night. The English Reformation was a close-run thing. No one who attempts to defend it theologically can stay the course because when investigated in any detail, it is so evidently evil that any Anglican researcher must desist or convert. Most desist. So it prevailed, and so it has been maintained, thanks to ruthless coercion. After Elizabeth I took the throne in Catholic England, her Protestant advisers had her make war on Catholics at home and abroad. Mary, Queen of Scots, and her supporters were murdered. 
England thieved from Philip I's Spanish ships with a relentless violence that were not acts of war, but pure piracy, absolutely lawless. Until today, England is proud of this, just as the tyrannical monster Henry VIII is still held in esteem. The Elizabethan court launched a terror campaign, but on this, mainstream historians prefer to stay silent. Putting down the Western Rising, the government used, for the first time in England's history, foreign mercenaries to kill Englishmen. This is not natural law, but early globalism surging forth. The enemy hysterically accused Catholics of their own misdeeds. Jesuit priests, sent as missionaries to provide the gospel and sacraments for starving English faithful, were falsely accused of being spies, political agents of overthrow. Most historians admit that the maintenance of early Anglicanism could not have been achieved without the international spy and finance channels of Francis Walsingham and William Cecil. How did these networks grow so readily? Jewish merchants provided a ready-made web across much of continental Europe. Some, remembering the influence their families used to have, saw an opportunity to regain it and to take revenge on the church. Supported by these, and with demonic cunning, Walsingham made innovative use of codes, ciphers, bribery, kidnappings, targets abducted from abroad and brought to England for interrogation, torture, show trials and murder to deepen the Crown's political stranglehold. England, so quick today to accuse others of tyranny, still shies away from facing her own past. Englishmen, not Jews, are responsible for Anglicanism. Germans, not Jews, are to blame for Lutheranism. The Scots, not Jews, will have to answer to God for Presbyterianism. It is by Satan and sin working through all men, all nations, that such things come about. Indeed, it is necessary that those with a heart for heresy be separated from the Church, for this serves clarity. But the fact that opposing God invariably serves his purpose does not justify that opposition. How many heretical political movements have arisen and survived thanks to Jewish ignition and support? Gnosticism, Arianism, Protestantism's anti-sacramental, anti-ecclesial, anti-sanctoral, anti-Marian theology and their faux Old Testament basis all demonstrate a succumbing to Judaizing. We will answer for our sins, they for theirs, but we will not have peace or stability if we pretend that the Jews are one nation like any other. They have a deeper role. Meanwhile, as in former scourgings, the Church survived the Reformation and grew more secure thanks to the Council of Trent. That holy convocation produced some of the richest theological documents ever penned on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, on the Seven Sacraments, notably the Holy Eucharist, and on original sin and grace. 
we are experiencing today another Reformation, only this time it is Rome in rebellion. The Vatican's new hatred of traditional morals, doctrine and liturgy is nothing new at all. Seeing Arianism and Gnosticism were led by Jews, and that Jews were decisive contributors to the Reformation, we can inquire what influence they had on Vatican II. The Catholic City Overrun In 1907, Pope St. Pius X condemned modernism as the synthesis of all heresies. Modernism is not a rejection of particular truths, but a denial that truth itself is real and knowable by man. As such, it is a wholesale rejection of Jesus Christ. It is an evil which has been growing in the world ever since the misnamed Enlightenment. After a long incubation, it gained traction in the Church with Vatican II. In 1961, the American Jewish Committee requested that Pope John XXIII direct the Vatican to quote, cleanse all Catholic educational and liturgical publications of inaccurate, distorted, slanderous or prejudiced statements about Jews as a group. Close quote. The aim was that catechisms, breveries and missals be expurgated of whatever Judaism found objectionable. The request was courteous, but deadly. More shameful than the AJC asking for this was that the church hierarchy fell for it. That said, it is no coincidence that that for which the AJC was asking was precisely that which the church perceived she needed to do in order to adapt herself to the modern world, using Vatican II to achieve it. It is not that the Vatican took direct orders from the American Jewish Committee. Rather, the Jewish spirit of modernity had successfully shaped the context wherein the Church discerned that if she did not strive to conform to the world, then she would suffer relentless calumny. Members of the ecclesial hierarchy were tired of withstanding the waves. Jewish influence upon the thinking of the church hierarchy had already been waxing for decades. See part three below. Especially after World War II, the bishops, like many men, were terrified of being labelled anti-Semitic. The fallout from Vatican II demonstrates that the bishops took their eyes off Christ and followed the spirit of this world instead. Fruits of Judaizing are obvious in the Novus Ordo Misse, the new Mass. The offertory prayers of the traditional Mass are 12th century Gallican masterpieces concerning the salvation worked by Jesus Christ in communion with all his saints through the acceptance of our present sacrifice by the Blessed Trinity. In the new Mass, these various prayers have been drastically curtailed or completely replaced with what resemble Judaic table prayers. The old offertory prayers are replete with majestic acts of God. The new delight instead in the work of human hands, an echo of idolatry. The old prayers strike us with the priest's admission of unworthiness, his innumerable sins, offences and negligences. 
the new prayers skip lightly over contrition, conforming to Judaism, which takes a superficial view of sin. The Novus Ordo's Judaic offertory prayers are for a meal, not a sacrifice, typically spoken by a family father, not a priest. As prayers focused on the temporal, they are mediocre, not duly proportioned for a memorial of the crucifixion. This faux imitation of Judaism by Catholics is more likely to win contempt from Jews rather than conversions as they mark our lack of trust in our own tradition. Why should they convert if they are the determinative party? Moreover, the degrading of a sacrifice to a meal has resulted in confusion among many Catholics who think they can participate in Seder meals as a form of liturgy or worship. But this attempt to persist in the Mosaic Covenant is a rejection of Jesus. With St. Augustine, St. Thomas teaches, quote, Now, though our faith in Christ is the same as that of the fathers of old, yet, since they came before Christ, whereas we come after him, the same faith is expressed in different words, by us and by them. For by them was it said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, where the verbs are in the future tense, whereas we express the same by means of verbs in the past tense and say that she conceived and bore. In like manner, the ceremonies of the old law betoken Christ as having yet to be born and to suffer, whereas our sacraments signify him as already born and having suffered. Consequently, just as it would be a mortal sin now for anyone in making a profession of faith to say that Christ is yet to be born, which the fathers of old said devoutly and truthfully, so too it would be a mortal sin now to observe those ceremonies which the fathers of old fulfilled with devotion and fidelity. Close quote. That which the angelic doctor identifies as mortal sin, the US Conference of Catholic Bishops actually encouraged Catholics to do in Holy Week to celebrate the ceremonies of those who reject Jesus. Quote, Seders arranged at or in cooperation with local synagogues are encouraged. Close quote. The Bishops' Committee on the Liturgy insisted that Catholics engaging in Judaism's rites may not introduce Christian elements. Quote, when Christians celebrate this sacred feast among themselves, the rites of the Haggadah for the Seder should be respected in all their integrity. Close quote. This is the blind leading the blind. The turning of our liturgy upside down has its counterpart in the crippling of exegesis. Judaism determinedly rejects the allegorical and anagogical senses of Scripture because the apostles and church fathers demonstrate that all Scripture points to Jesus Christ. To hide this, it is declared illegitimate to read more into the Scriptures than was intended by the author. This principle is exalted in order to exclude Christ. It ignores the fact that God is the ultimate author. Modern Catholic exegesis, embracing Judaism's pitiful reductionism, 
seemingly scorns to rise above the literal sense of Scripture. Of course, the literal sense is fundamental, but we are not meant to remain there, rather to ascend to the spiritual. Instead of this, for decades, academic exegesis has been thoroughly dominated by the historical critical method. Its advocates carry great weight in the Vatican, apparently enough to veto traditional theology in documents regarding Judaism. But the Church confining herself to textual criticism and archaeology, to arguments about historicity, is like a plane which taxis but never takes off useless for salvation. With some blessed exceptions among modern exegetes, spiritual senses of Scripture are ignored, seemingly so that Christian differences with Judaism are not exposed. At the same time, on historical and textual criticism, we are meant to defer to Jews as experts and thereafter remain silent. Gaslit Catholics have taken on board anti-Christian criticism and mope under an inferiority complex. An example of this false humility, allowing Judaizers to mesmerize the Church, is the recent renumbering of the Psalms. The learned Jews who penned the Septuagint generations before the coming of Christ knew full well how to divide the 150 Psalms. Their system was adopted by the early Church and also used in the Vulgate, and passed on through all generations until the Church lost confidence at Vatican II. Judaism numbers the Psalms differently. About 1,000 years after Christ, the rabbis added Psalm numbers to the Masoretic text differently from other traditions. Protestants copied Judaism's numbering, pleased to slight the Catholic Church and pose as if they understood the Scriptures better. In our age, Infatuated with heretics like Harnack and beguiled by modernists like Rana, insecure, faithless, whoring Catholic exegetes decided like Protestants to follow the Jews. On this point, almost the whole church has since gone after them. Does renumbering the Psalms matter? Yes. One reason is the unnecessary difficulties caused for study. Worse, is detaching the Church from the authority of the Vulgate and Septuagint. Who can think that Jews 1,000 years after Christ understood the psalm divisions better than the Jewish scholars who translated the Bible into Greek some 200 years before Christ and whom the Church had followed for millennia? The false signal sent by renumbering the psalms is that the Church, inferior in understanding, has to catch up with Judaism and Protestantism. Thankfully, the Orthodox retain the traditional numbering. None of this is to dispute Jewish expertise, obviously, with Hebrew. Nor is it, obviously, to deny that Jews can understand the Bible. Along with St. Luke, a Gentile, they wrote it. The point is that Judaism is in no condition to give lessons to the Church on hearing the Word of God. Jewish influence on the Church's magisterium is made obvious by Nostra Aetate, the drafting of which was dominated by Jewish converts. Originally, it was meant to focus solely on the Jewish question, 
In fact, it was to be a cultural revolution-style self-accusation by the Church for her history of hating Jews. The German Jesuit, Augustin Cardinal Bay, made multiple trips to New York, where, in his weak eagerness to please, his mind was formed by Jewish lobbyists, including of B'nai B'rith, Sons of the Covenant, founded as a secret society lodge in 1843 by twelve Jewish Freemasons. Bay transmitted their agenda to the Vatican. As a mercy, faithful bishops were able to broaden the scope of Nostra Aetate's final text to cover all religions and to limit its undermining of the faith. With equivocation, the truth about religious freedom can just about be read into this document, but it is much obscured. To be clear, error has no rights. It is tolerated for the greater good, for it is impossible to eradicate error by force. True worship generates freedom and is the purpose of freedom. There is no other God beside God. All other religious systems will be crushed by, or tend toward, Satanism. Although Catholic resistance spared Nostra Aetate from becoming much worse, its spirit is abroad, invoked as ammunition for heretical claimants that all religions are equal or that various religions can be pleasing to God. Many devout Catholics suppose Vatican II was designed to please the world and the new Mass was compiled to please Protestants, for example by removing reference to sacrifice and priesthood. But behind worldly atheism, behind Protestant errors, are Judaism's jealous rejection of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the sacramental priesthood and the papacy. To claim Catholic teaching and liturgy is being undermined by Protestantism is true, but this does not get to the source of the contamination. Could Protestants have gained their platform or defining ideas without Judaism? I do not believe so. Rather, the 2,000-year course of indefatigable Judaizing includes the birth of Protestantism. The collaboration of Jews with Puritans in England and with WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, in America, draws from the same malevolent roots. Judaizing deforms Christian society to be carnal, legalistic, materialistic, money-led. The growing acceptance of divorce, and therefore contraception, abortion and transgenderism, and the growing domination of global finance are two sides of one materialistic coin. The Marxist revolution in economics, inflaming antagonism between classes, is mirrored in the cultural revolution fracturing families, neighbourhoods and nations, an agenda which has been deliberately pursued by the predominantly Jewish Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, Grossman. Catholic countries have followed Protestant countries in submitting themselves to this Christless worldview. Infected with this spirit, now Francis and his hierarchy are promoting a worldly messianism, social justice, mass immigration, 
environmental alarmism, religious syncretism. The church is becoming dangerously legalistic, producing verbose documents which bury the truth with wordiness, promoting worldly prelates who replace the family of God with bureaucracy, one which cares not about prosecuting clerical abuse. Law is weaponized to eradicate the worship of God, traditionis custodes, amounting to spiritual genocide. How deep is the disorientation? The USCCB advises, quote, Pope John Paul II's visit to the chief rabbi of Rome on Good Friday 1987 gives a lead for pastoral activities during Holy Week in local churches. Some dioceses and parishes have begun traditions such as holding a service of reconciliation with Jews on Palm Sunday or inviting Holocaust survivors to address their congregations during Lent. Close quote. It is important to listen to Holocaust survivors, but why in the context of Lent, of Holy Week? Priests have internalized the obscene accusation that remembrance of the Passion causes anti-Semitism. See below. There is a like insinuation in having Holocaust survivors come to address Catholics preparing for Holy Week. Such events could never occur without tacit agreement that all keep silence on Judaism's total opposition to the central mysteries of Catholic faith. The Holocaust survivor we should be hearing from in Lent and Holy Week is the victim of the worst crime in history, Jesus Christ. One can see that Jews do not yet accept this, but how have bishops lost sight of it? Have they too loved the glory of men more than the glory of God? A Pattern Throughout Church History The early church's vigilant self-defense against Judaizers is recorded in the New Testament not as an historical curiosity, but for the constant exhortation of Christians. Woe to the church when she neglects this vigilance. Quote, it is out of place to profess Christ Jesus and to Judaize, for Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism Christianity, so that every believing tongue be gathered into God. Close quote. Today we see a fearful corruption of Catholicism. It is difficult to uncover its roots, for the devil begins his operations in darkness. But a deplorable influence of Judaism on the Church's liturgy, scriptures and magisterium has now become unmistakable. It is not love of Jews which accepts all this influence, but fear of them. This fear is well grounded in temporal terms, but supernaturally it makes no sense at all. Our Lord told us, quote, And fear ye not them that kill the body, and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Close quote. Until we learn this, one redeeming advantage of widespread gloom is that the darkness of falsehood accentuates the splendor of truth. The whole is set for a dramatic correction. The longer the delay, the deeper the descent, then the more glorious the correction will be. 
Meanwhile, nurturing indignation toward Protestants, atheists or Jews is no remedy. Making regular examinations of conscience, questioning our own fidelity and repenting of our infidelity is the beginning of the remedy. A little bit of grit results in a pearl, even one of great price. As the circumcision party provoked St. Paul's letter to the Galatians to the eternal benefit of the Church, as Arianism prompted the Council of Nicaea to the eternal benefit of the Church, as the Reformation motivated Trent to the eternal benefit of the Church, so modernism, the synthesis of all heresies, is inducing a restoration of tradition which, we may be sure, will be to the eternal benefit of the Church. To maintain a serene courage, we may meditate on the crucifixion as a precondition for the resurrection. Analogously, the global strangulation by modernism, denying the existence of truth, may be a precondition for the triumph of Mary's Immaculate Heart, the establishment of global Christendom, morally strong, unshakable in faith, and unmovable from liturgical tradition. God allows men to pronounce untruths, including Judaism, so that other men may cleave even more closely to the one truth. Heresy purifies doctrine.